0: Comic boom collaboration time for the DC Spotlight for May twenty third, twenty twenty three. Pretty solid week. Some great books and uh, a couple of arcs slash series. Uh, Green Arrow still feels like it's just getting started. Doom Patrol feels like it's getting its footing. Sitting Boy makes its debut. So overall, yeah, it was a solid week. What would you think, Rock? I
1: I thought I thought this was uh, it was kind of a meh week. It was a uh was 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 just nothing really stood out to me as being uh like really great it was just kind of meh but uh everything's sort of coasting right now but it's still it i still i i I will still say i feel much better this year than last year at this time i still feel that at least i feel that these storylines are going somewhere i just feel overall the direction is is it's you know uh i just feel better about dc in general and i i'm in I find myself enjoying reading DC more than I have in the last two years. And even though there's still some comics that we'll probably, you know, that we can be critical of, uh, the reality is that it, it is, uh, I'm feeling, I'm in a better mood now, you know, uh, and it might be because I'm drinking non-alcoholic Corona Sunbeam, but, uh, you know, maybe not being an alcoholic makes me a better person. I don't know. I I've read that in a book somewhere, but, you know, reading comics. I,
0: I, I, we, we give DC a bad time, <clears throat> bad time, um, frequently, you know, editorially, we're not sure where it's going and, and may, you know, maybe that's just a, a product of past regimes. You know, um, we didn't always agree with the choices Dan Didio made when he was steering the ship, but the thing was, at least he was present. At least he was there. He was a presence at shows he's a larger life personality. Dan's a great guy, you know, on a personal level, uh, but it felt like, you know, whether you agreed with them or not, at least it felt like there was leadership there. You know, the the, the editorial leadership that's in place now—they're much more behind the scenes. They're much quieter. And again, you know, at times we've we've sort of criticized and said, you know, rudderless ship. But at the end of the day, when you you talk about the books that we we haven't felt like have been firing on all all cylinders, the books that we, you know, in all fairness, to be you know perfectly objective objective about it. We rant about not being that good, whether it's Rocky ranting or me ranting, or sometimes both of us, those are the titles that haven't continued, right? Or or getting a different creative team. You talk about Wonder Woman, you talk about Tim Drake Robin, you talk about uh, Wonder Woman. I mean, those are the books where changes are being made. So, you know, maybe we're being a little overly harsh. Now, on the other hand, books that we praise, like Flash, are getting a new creative team as well. So <laughs> uh, hard, hard to say. Um, you know, this Dawn of the DC, I talked about it last time or, or the episode before, this Dawn of the DC publishing initiative feels so different from things they've done in the past because it's rolling out sort of pieces rather than, you know, this big publishing initiative happening all at once, a la New 52 or DCU, even though the argument could be made, that didn't work out real well. Uh, Rebirth rolled out all at the same time, a new number ones that, that did, uh, was well-received. It did well. So, you know, I don't know. Last thing I can remember that rolled out this over this long extended period of time was after crisis, right. And they took forever to reboot some of the things like wonder woman. And it just added to the, the sort of the mess of continuity that DC had at the time, instead of doing what Marv Wolfman wanted to do back then was kind of what they did when they finally, uh, did the new 52, which was uh, lo- relaunch everything with new number ones. Um, and, he, and Marv actually wanted to change the name of the publisher too, from de- detective comics to action comics. It's kind of interesting the, uh thought <laughs> there. Cause you think about it, it, it's always weird. Like DC stands for detective comics, but you say DC comics. So detective comics, comics, eh, a bit redundant, yeah. but <laughs> anyway, anyway um, to add to the, the idea of this week being sort of meh, um, we're going to start off with, pr- probably one of the most high quality books and uh, a title that I've really been enjoying. I think Rocky as well. The problem is, and I, you know, I hate to sound like a broken record and you don't know, you know, know who necessarily is at fault, but this, the series, we're only four issues in, it's already been plagued by delays. Mikhail Yanine and Jerry Ordway are the artists. And I, I will say Mikhail typically in the past hasn't been somebody who's known for being slow. N- neither is Jerry Ordway. But, uh, so what's the common denominator here when we see things that have taken a long time, like Doomsday Clock, previous Shazam series?
1: Right. Jeff Johns is the
0: leader. So, you know, I, I love Jeff. He's such a huge comic fan. He's a great guy to talk to. Um, but he's also super busy. So, you know, I'm, again, I'm not pointing the finger at Jeff. I don't know what the issue is. But when you have something that has already taken a long time to come out, being Justice Society of America, this issue four here, Uh, And then you add in delays, like, man, I talk about all the time. There's no faster way to rob a comic of momentum and, you know, excitement for readers to to talk about it and enjoy it and experience it than to have it be delayed. Uh, And who knows when it's coming out or, or, whatever. I mean, it took two years for Doomsday Clock to come out. And as much as I don't like that it took that long and it, it affected other things like Tom King's Batman run and, and a whole slew of things lost the impact uh, and the emotionality of rebirth because it took so long, you know, looking back on it, it probably was the right choice, right? Say, Hey, let's, this is going to come out every other month because then at least people know right now, people, (laughs) you don't know when justice society is going to come out, you know, unless you pay close attention. Well, even
1: even as junkyard Joe uh, for image is, and his entire image universe is really slow. It's, it's coming out like snail pacing. Yeah, and it's like, how can I get excited when I don't
0: know what it's going to be there? You know, even even us who pay a lot of attention, I, I was like, wait, didn't this? Wasn't this? I thought I had read it last week. Then it was, it was coming out. This was like, it's just it's it's just hard. It, it loses momentum. That being said, the story is really interesting. I love the Mikel Yanin art. I love the Jerry Ordway art. This is uh, one of those instances where the the art is vastly different. too. their styles are are nowhere near the same. Um, Jerry's art is is it has this classic kind of golden age feel, and maybe that's because you know I, I loved All Star Squadron back of the day. He he drew most of that. McKell's art is is much more slick and modern looking, but they set it up where Ordway's doing the pages that are in the past. McKell's doing the pages that are in the present, uh, and it just works. And seeing the characterization that Jeff brings to these characters, he knows these characters so well. Whether it's you know, a more modern version of Alan Scott, whether it's Khalid as uh, as Doctor Fate, or people he's familiar with like Jay Garrick, uh, Kara or Karen, rather, or w- what the heck is her name? Penelope? What, what's what's Power Girl call it herself now? I can't even keep track. Anymore. Page. 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 There it is. I knew it started with a P. Uh-huh. Uh, but either way, this is a fun series. This is really interesting. I, you know, my only nitpick is I just wanted to come out on a regular basis because I love this. People that were fans of Jeff's JSA classic run uh, back in the early 2000s, you know, this is going to be right up your alley. Um, Degaton as the villain is interesting. Huntress as the time-traveling hero as opposed to somebody like a Flash is interesting. Even, uh, you know, her reminding us of, of having put together uh, – a sort of a second chance JSA with the classic justice society, super villains like uh gentleman ghost and, um, uh, icicle and, uh, uh not gorilla garage, Solomon Grundy. Uh, even that's interesting to me. Um, so uh, there's nothing I don't love about this series except for the fact that it hasn't been coming out uh, on time. Just, just fantastic. Uh, gorgeous covers as well. um, the McKellenine cover, probably my favorite, uh, but they're all they're all solid. So, uh, what are your thoughts on the series overall? <clears throat> uh,
1: I've been I've been enjoying it, uh, other than the delays. Uh, now, now I have to say that, <clears throat> interestingly enough, while I think this is this might be one of the, one of the more interesting stories that are coming out of the dawn of the DCU, what I, I I'm I'm frustrated with the delay because if it's there, there's a number of things that are coming. The, the central point of the Dawn of the DCU, the, the biggest plot point, is Amanda Waller basically making a deal with uh, telling all the supervillains to kill a kill a hero and I'll give you a pardon. Meanwhile, we've got, uh, what other major events do we got brewing in the DC Universe? Well, we've got this per Degaton thing with the return of the Justice Society. And we know that uh, Batman in the future is going to die. And we know that his future, uh, this just this storyline has Helena um, Helena Wayne coming back, the daughter of Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle coming back to essentially save the Justice Society from being wiped out in various timelines by Per Degaton, and uh, we also learn uh, that uh, Helena Wayne in this issue she's got not only does she have that agenda to want to save the just to save the Justice Society. Uh, from in different timelines from being destroyed, but she not only wants to defeat Per Degaton, but she also wants to save the life of Batman. She wants to save the life of her father because one of the central enduring mysteries is that, you know, how did Batman die? And so, at, at the end of this issue, it ends on the cliffhanger that she's she wants to. She's sort of like she's got no problem. Per Degaton is messing with time, <laughs> and Per Degaton in this issue is even talking with his older self. Per Degaton is deter- is is established in this issue as being a living paradox. Uh, the next generation of dr Midnight along with Yolanda the <coughs> Yolanda uh, marked uh, Yolanda I forget her last name uh, the um, the wildcat the new version of wildcat she they they determine that uh, perdegaton is a living paradox uh, meanwhile Helena discovers that because she's uh, Helena herself discovers that she, perdegaton can't see her in the time stream can't see her in time so Uh, at the beginning of this issue when Per Degaton shows up to essentially wipe out the Justice Society in this, in, in the present day time frame, he discovers much to his chagrin that he doesn't, he wasn't aware that Helena Wayne was there, the huntress was there and she chopped off his finger and they managed to, he manages to escape before the Justice Society could take him out. And, and also Dr. Fate is there as well. So, uh, uh, Khalid Nasser as Doctor Fate, along with Hel- Helena Wayne, seem to be two uh, individuals that can uh, overcome whatever machinations or power set that Per Degaton seems to orchestrate as he goes through time, trying to wipe out various aspects of the Justice League. And you mentioned before the the art of um, um I can't remember the the artist's name. Macellianine or Hardway. Oh, Ordway, yes. Jerry Ordway's art in the past, uh, which is perfectly because it reminds you of you know, all, all, the All-Star Squad. It, it, so Per Degaton talking with his uh, his older counterpart, very clearly they, they have a master plan here. And at the beginning of this series, Madame X, Madame Xanadu, she basically discovers that it was Per Degaton made a deal with the Last Lord of Chaos. Now per degaton already had was already somewhat of a master of time, and now he made a deal with the Lord of chaos and so we know that probably explains some of the aspects of his powers that we don't really understand yet but clearly makes him a force to be reckoned with and again all of this uh all of this is 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 building and this is a slow build this this story is kind of it's it's progressing at a snail pace unfortunately. But we, Jeff Johns does give us tidbits of information. We know that uh, Wildcat Yolanda um, is is taking Montez. a Lazar. Pardon me. Montez is her last name. Montez, movie. thank you. Yolanda Montez is taking a Lazarus pill to keep her alive because she was dead. She's a character that's supposed to be dead, and we know that the Lazarus reign sort of brought back some of these characters. And apparently, uh, maybe maybe that wasn't the case. It was a Lazarus pill that she needs to keep taking. Keep taking to to maintain some sort of uh, life essence, uh, which we sort of saw in a little bit. We, we already saw that already played with in um, in the well, the DC's played with the Lazarus Pill and the Lazarus Resin right since since Future State, even when Tim Drake was killed off and the Tim Drake Future State. Oh, good God! Sorry for reminding people of that, but in any event, a lot's happened here. I'm really curious to know exactly where, where this is going. I know that I know that the Justice Society will ultimately defeat Per Degaton, but getting there, what is is Helena is Helena the, the hunters is she going to end up being trapped in our time? Is she going to be able to effectively warn her father as she did, does at the end of this issue? She shows up as he's taking out this toad villain, telling him I've come back in time to save your life in a very Terminator-like fashion. And so it's going to be interesting to see is it going to be something where Batman's going to have, is he going to listen to his daughter? Is he going to believe her? It's uh, So there's a lot at play here. I'm interested in this storyline, but my god, it's it's frustrating that I always got to catch up on my readings whenever Whenever I read this issue on the other hand there's not a lot to catch up on because not a heck of a lot has happened since issue one so yeah so it's 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 a must read I think but at the same time if you're in the DC I think you should be reading this because it's probably one of the better written but it, it can be a little frustrating
0: yeah because like I said it loses the, the momentum it loses the emotionality because you're right I mean I mean I lost my father relatively young my father was about the same age I am now um and you know if i had the chance to go back and save him right but i mean D- dead man and zatanna t- tell helena Batman's death must not be interfered with you know what does she do she's over there t- you know about to tell him hey here's what you need to do to avoid dying but c- can you blame her like yeah. you know that would be so that would be so hard uh, but yet, she may be creating a paradox. I mean, we know what happened with Flashpoint when uh, Barry went back and saved his his mother. So, and that was written by Jeff Johns as well. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, moving parts in this series. But you're right, it is moving rather slow. And I wonder if we'd feel the same way without the delays, right? If it had come out on time. <clears throat> but I think I think it's a little bit of both. I think Jeff writes things that are a little more decompressed now um, than he used to. You know, think about things that he's done recently. Um, you mentioned his mad ghost stuff at Image. Geiger, that was relatively decompressed for being a six-issue arc, you know, all-encompassing. And I, I know he'll get back to it at some point, or he, he wants to get back to it at some point. Only six issues. I mean, there's so much to that world that could be fleshed out. And, yeah. it, you know, barely felt like a complete story. So um yeah, I think it's a bit of both. It's he, he writes more decompressed now and things are delayed. It, it's not a good, not a good combo. Um, well, speaking of things that feel like maybe not a complete story, uh, green arrow number two is out this week as well. Written by Joshua Williamson, art and cover by Sean Isaacs, Ramulo Fardo Jr. does the, uh, colors and the letters are by Troy Petrie. Um, absolutely fantastic covers. Once again, um, there was a, uh, a David Nakayama Green Arrow cover for, for the first issue. This David Nakayama variant is Arsenal, and it's, it's fantastic. God, just just really, really gorgeous. Um, if I have any nitpick about the series, uh, well, maybe two things. We, we talked about it extensively when we covered the first issue, about how everything in D.C. has a family now, and uh, Joshua Williamson is being away from that it goes so far as to mention it specifically multiple times in the first issue. It's mentioned again here. This isn't, it almost shouldn't be called green arrow, right? Or, or which green arrow? Because we've got Connor Hawk and we've got Ollie and we've got Leanne and we've got Amico, and we've got black Canary and we've got Arsenal, you know, multiple green arrows, you know, multiple arrow based heroes, even Leanne who to my, to my knowledge uh Had never used a bow and arrow before.
1: Yeah, I mean, no, <laughs> yeah, she never did. Yeah, yeah. No, That this that was obviously very that's forced. Let's be blunt, but I mean, we we don't know exactly. Leanne's been her way off the playing field, been a been an orphan, been an alley cat in the pages of Catwoman for years. Wow. So, you and know. her nickname was Shoes,
0: if I'm not mistaken. There, that's
1: right. Yeah. So yeah,
0: no, no no nickname there that would kind of give a hint to bow and arrow, And when she does use it here to Williamson's credit, she, she fires like eight arrows and, and misses. till she finally hits her, her target. So maybe it's just a product of, you know, her being stuck, her being with Oliver and, you know, not having a weapon she can use and, and picking up the bow. Um, but again, it, it's man, it's a lot of archers. It's a lot of archers. And I, 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 I go back and forth on it. We've talked about it many times when you have multiple characters in a family, it takes away the unique feel of the character. I mean, Batman, certainly, you know, the power creep is one thing, but the fact that, you know, lone guy, man against the world, crusader fighting crime, he's got a, how many, 20, 20 different supporting characters at this point. Like it, it it stops making it feel special. Um, and especially with somebody like Green Arrow, it doesn't have powers. More and more of these characters, I mean, all this whole Green Arrow family, right? None of them really have powers. So, you know, Black Canary being the exception. Um, but yeah, it makes it feel less special. It makes it, it becomes harder to buy into the fact that they can all be out there fighting crime. Nobody dies. Or if they do die like Roy, they bring them back anyway. Same thing with Leanne. So yeah, it's, it's problematic at best. And it, this feels... Both fast paced, like a quick read, but also, and, and things are moving quickly, but it's almost like we're not getting enough information, right? Like we know Ollie was in some future place, futuristic looking place. Is it the future? Is it an alternate timeline? Different part of the multiverse? Then there's hints here. He's just on another planet with advanced technology. And Leanne is talking to him, reminds him, he seems to have forgotten that Roy was his protege, that Roy was his sidekick. And then as soon as he's reminded, he's – him and Leanne are pulled out and sent somewhere else. So clearly something very powerful going on, somebody manipulating the memories of this these Green Arrow family members, what's going on, hints of Amanda Waller, like Rocky mentioned, this idea that she's – and we talked about it extensively last time, what an idiot she is um, for – thinking that the DC universe would be better off without the heroes and putting a bounty on them, offering uh, amnesty to supervillains if they take out the superheroes. Um, so something going on. Is it Amanda Waller behind it? Is it somebody else? We don't know. Um, so in a way, yeah, it's very, very interesting that it feels like it's moving really fast with Oliver already, you know, being in two different places in two issues, you know, gets transported or shows up at some futuristic planet. in the first issue Second issue is already pulled to some some place else, somewhere else. We don't know where yet. Um, but at the same time, we don't have any answers yet. So in a way, it feels like it's moving slow. But in a way, it feels like it's moving fast. It's such a dichotomous story. Uh, I don't. Two issues in, I still don't know. Am I? Do I like this? Do I not like this? Not not enough information yet. Which, you know, I'm okay. I always say give give a series, you know, two three issues to kind of find its footing. If we get to the end of the third issue. And Ollie is in a, and Leanne are in a third place, and we still don't have any hints on who's behind this or what's happening or why. I may start to push back a little bit on on that. Like I understand keeping the mystery, in, but we talked about it with Mark Wade, um, and how great he's done uh, on his uh, world's finest with this latest uh, Amazo story, Professor Ivo story that's going on, where you know. Somebody killed Simon Stagg. A little bit of a mystery, but it doesn't drag on and on and on. As opposed to things like the Red X mystery and Titans Academy. So, um, one thing that's been absolutely fantastic throughout, no question. Um, you know, maybe questions about the narrative, but no doubt that Sean Isaac's art is absolutely fantastic. Fajardo on colors, really. really our team, art team is kicking ass. Um, I, I talked about it last time. How much I love the kind of futuristic costume. That all he's wearing on this uh, alien planet that he's on—that's really cool. Again, great covers, uh, really bright, vibrant colors, which again help with that classic superhero feel. So there's there's a lot to like. Uh, I just I need Williamson to start giving me some some hints or some clues or just spoon feed me and tell me you know what the heck is going on because uh, it's a, it's a bit disjointed, especially when you have this many characters in the book and no idea what's going on or even a hint at who the bad guy is at this point so uh what did
1: you think well it's interesting that uh it's hinted that Amanda Waller was the one who's responsible for maybe keeping Leon Harper uh hidden over the many years from, from her father and from the Green Arrow family. It's also interesting in the pages of The Flash, we know Granny Goodness was responsible for keeping Mr. Terrific's son, stealing him from the womb. Uh, Donna Troy's daughter uh, also was uh, one of the other children in that in, uh, that Granny Goodness had taken. So all these children of the next generations, it appear that... Either Amanda Waller or Granny Goodness took a lot of the children, and uh, the children that Amanda Waller or Granny Goodness didn't take uh, seem to be the lost children in Jeff John's in Jeff Johns' uh, <laughs> Stargirl, the, the Lost Children series. So this is a very interesting way for DC to say, oh... We need more heroes we, so cuz we need more stories to tell. We need more heroes for a new generation of comic books and for comic book readers. So what's the fastest and the quickest and most organic way we can do that? Now, well this is the way they chose to do it. Whether or not it feels organic is going to be up to individual readers. I think it kind of worked with Lost Children here. I think Leanne Harper we we've, we've been, you know, she died and I think over the years we've gotten the last few years, we've gotten hints of her return, and, I'll, and uh, I'm glad she's in the pages here, at Green Arrow. Uh, if, if I'm really nitpicking, my nitpicking this issue has more to do with me playing script doctor, which admittedly is unfair because I'm not the writer, but I'm going to make comments anyway. I wish Leanne Harper was had more time. I, her Leanne Harper being with Green Arrow here, we don't learn much about Leanne Harper at all. Um, and it makes me, and, and it's just, I find it really hard to believe that she doesn't reveal more about her past, more about herself. Of course, Green Arrow doesn't either, but then we get the convenient plot point of, well, Green Arrow, their memories are being played with. Well, how convenient. It's the same thing with the lost children. And I get that because you, you, I, it, it's it's just so tropey though. It's like, well, we writers we we don't want to play all our hands because frankly we don't know what the hand is. So we're just gonna have everyone's memory be all skewy. We're gonna either have time travel shenanigans in JSA or the Lost Children plucking them out of time, or here we're just gonna have Green Arrow plucked out of the out of uh, almost dying at the at the hands of Doomsday and Dark Crisis. Green Arrow's gonna end up somewhere, hopping from world to world, and he's gonna have Leon Harper with him and. Uh, of course, Roy Harper is going to find out about it. So Roy Harper and Black Canary are on the trail. And while they're looking for them, they run into Count Vertigo and then ultimately be confronted by the Peacemaker and Mrs. Peacemaker. Which incidentally, by the way, we still don't know who the hell is this this female Peacemaker, Mrs. Peacemaker. I'd, I'd like to know her story at some point. I don't know when we're ever going to get that. But so when... I'm I'm curious about so many characters. I want to see some very interesting, I want to see, I'm interested in Leon Harper. I'm not interested in 90% of the Green Arrow family, to be honest with you. I, to be honest with you, Oliver Queen has never been much of a father, not much of a father figure, and quite frankly, and I, I kind of wish that Leon Harper and Roy Harper would that that story would be told in the pages of Teen Titans or even in the pages of Titans as opposed to this book uh, because I don't see... This This should be deeply a deeply emotional issue because to me, the heart of this story has to be the the, the reunion between Lee and Harper and Roy Harper, which unfortunately was played out in the first issue and nothing came of it. And so you, you never really got a chance to explore it all that much and it was just sort of a quick tease to get people to pick up the first issue and I I don't... This is still set up. It's only the second issue. And so I'm prepared to stick with it uh, as you are. I just hope that this I just hope that we just don't get like Joshua Williamson. He has a hard enough time with one character, but when he gets tidbits like this, I hope he I hope he uh, I'm, I'm a little bit worried, but I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm, I'm still enjoying this. I just, uh, but really, nothing happens in this issue. Surprise, surprise, Green Arrow doesn't remember anything. And, and they're hopping around all over the place. There's even a new character introduced. They, they don't even get her name. I mean, he, he fights this. Uh, she's, she's actually on the variant cover. We don't know her name. Her name isn't stated in the comic. Uh, it's this new character. Who is this new character? No idea. She's in the comic. I couldn't find her name referenced in the comic uh despite this long conversation as green arrow and leon are fighting her uh there's no mention as to her name that's a miss that's 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 a dumb thing to do mention her name uh i you, you i don't know i i stand to be corrected but it should have been more pronounced if if the if the name isn't there but i i can't find her name for the for the life of me but uh i'm sure it's probably somewhere but anyways little nitpick, like nitpick picks like that but i'm sure we're going to see this character again because um, right now it just feels like you know that's you know Williamson is dealing with a huge family and he still wants to find time to introduce his new characters. Why focus on the family? <laughs> like, I, that's what I want because that's what, and I think that's what fam, fam, uh, fans want too. But uh, all in all, I still enjoy this issue and um, you know I would I would recommend people pick it up because it does have a dawn of DC feel to it.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm not sure about this. Pe- First of all, female, okay, so peacemaker more popular than ever, right? Like literally more popular, more people know his name than ever. You know, credit James Gunn for that. Good or bad? I mean, he's always been a, kind of a fringe character at best. But you know, between Suicide Squad movie and then his successful TV show, I, I kind of thought, well, maybe there's a there was a version of him in the TV show, but I guess not. So I went, I actually went back and looked. Like first of all, So he'll do anything for peace. You know, if you read the Kyle Starks recent Black Label Peacemaker series which Rocky and I both really liked, uh, you know, he'll even eat poop for peace a whole bucket of it if he has to. Um, (laughs) You know, he's going to – and it's right there in the name. He'll do whatever he can to ensure peace. He's a peacemaker. This female version is peace wrecker. So she wrecks peace. Like wouldn't they be at odds?
1: (laughs) Is, is Is that who that is? Yeah, peace wrecker. Is how do we? Name. How do we know that? Was that? Was that name? Was 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 her uh, name ever well, said that? It's well, it's right there on the the page you have up. Oh, okay. Uh, well, okay, but that's fair enough. Yeah. It does say peacemaker and peace wrecker. But in any yeah. story, was she ever referred to as peace wrecker in any comic book in any narrative since her first appearance? But well, shown
0: well, up in the background in several books. Her first, you know, I guess you consider it a cameo appearance would be Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths number seven, where she shows up there uh, on that page with, you know, Amanda Waller and her current suicide squad, I guess. And then I think she showed up in the background of um, Team Titans number one as well um, when yeah. Peacemaker shows up um, at the nuclear power plant or whatever that the, I think it was Titania was attacking. But I, yeah, I don't know if anybody's ever actually to her as Peace wrecker um, I mean, I, I knew she was Peace Wrecker, but I, th- think maybe i got it from this from, from that little blurb so yeah I, again no idea who she is um does it because she's gonna tie into the tv show i mean who knows but yeah more, more to come I, I don't feel i don't feel like i need a lot of peacemaker in my life uh, i never <laughs> thought he was interesting of a character i think his helmet looks dumb to be honest his character design wow real bad um and so the last thing I need is a female version, but again, not surprising based on what comic publishing companies do when well, something's popular.
1: Uh, you talk about opposites attract. I can't believe Peacemaker would work would work with a woman named Peace Wrecker, but you know, I guess it is. Yeah, <laughs> there you go.
0: Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. If she wrecks peace? So I don't know. Interesting, but anyway, moving on. City Boy number one from writer Greg Pak, Minku Jung is the artist Sunny Go does the colors, West Abbott on letters. We've seen this character in a couple of books before, uh, much like the, uh, the vigil that we talked about last week uh, from, um, from Ram V. Um, so this is part of the, the, we are legends DC initiative that's going on, introducing new Asian American characters. And don't get me wrong. I'm all for it. At the same time. It's like, I never understand introducing a bunch of new characters when you, like you were just saying, (laughs) uh, William's introducing new characters in the pages of Green Arrow when we have characters that already exist like Leanne that we don't know enough about. There's plenty of Asian characters that exist within DC already that you could create books around and, you know, flesh out their characters. But I I don't know, maybe it's that whole idea that you're going to attract new readers. like, hey, I don't have to go back and, and look up, past issues from years past to be on board with city boy, right? A couple of issues, a couple of appearances previous to this. And now here's his main series. So real easy to get caught up with all his appearances and, and jump on board. So he's kind of a, a, an Asian version of Jack Hawksmore, if you will. Um, although he, you know, his powers, his ability to talk to the city, um, he sort of suppresses it and, uh, that's fleshed out in this issue with Pac showing that he's sort of afraid of his powers. He's afraid of kind of losing himself and he wants to kind of keep things on the surface. He only uses his uh, abilities to sort of survive, to find equipment, find, you know, lost jewelry, to find lost cell phones. He goes and sells them at pawn shops so he can feed himself uh, rather than like really communicating with the city itself until he's forced into doing that. So, He's a very young character. He's very inexperienced. He's sort of learning his powers, sort of learning um, what he can do and what he can't do. And we're sort of learning right along with him. He he feels young. He feels inexperienced. He feels sort of lost in a way, um, which is so interesting because when you talk about the level of power he has, and again, I can't help but compare him with Jack Hawksmore, the Wildstorm character that can also communicate with cities. uh, And he feels so... So old, you know, so wise in in a way, so kind of seasoned, I guess is the best word, Um, that he couldn't be taken by surprise by anything because he's sort of seen it all and done it all. This character, City Boy, feels um, the exact opposite of that. So uh, interesting character, still, you know, just barely to know Cameron. Um, And being that it's set in Metropolis, I'm, I'm sort of expecting Superman to show up at some point but he's not really mentioned at all in this issue. And uh, we're also seeing uh, sort of a seedier side of Metropolis, right? Like when you talk about Metropolis, that's sort of the bright, shiny, clean city, as opposed to Gotham, which you think of as dirty and grungy and uh, crime-ridden, if you will. So interesting to see this other side of, uh, of Metropolis. So overall, I thought it was a pretty decent start. Um, well-paced, big chunk of story, and uh, enough there, enough mystery there. Enough questions unanswered to uh, to hook you. So I thought it was a pretty
1: solid debut. What did you think? Uh, yes, I I thought uh, this was much better than uh, I enjoyed this first issue more than I did his in his earlier appearances because this this gives us more information and it's, it's more interesting. It it humanizes. I, I really love how in the opening pages, which I think were the most important in the entire comic, and that is it. It really humanized it, Cameron. Uh, This young man, Cameron, uh, because right away you see uh, it's, you know, you feel for him because he he's taken away from his mother. His mother sort of almost essentially abandons him, seems to drop him off in the city and leaves him. She takes off in a taxi and leaves him in a city. And he's absolutely traumatized by it. Now, you got to think what kind of how that kind of trauma would impact that would have on a young man. But yet early signs are in this issue that Cameron still manages to maintain a fairly, you know, a uh, straight, you know, northern projector, uh, moral compass. Uh, he seems to be a really good guy and he even helps out this uh, young bum called uh, Fujimoto. And uh, this Fujimoto, uh, unbeknownst to Cameron, there's this uh, sort of mafia boss, this boss, Chung, who goes around and expects everyone who who is within his territory to give him 10% of whatever they find, 10% of what they make, 10% of what they find. And of course, City Boy has the particular power that he can literally find Pretty much anything he wants, to, what he's looking for in the city, he has got a, some sort of weird ability that the exact definition, the, the exact uh, parameters of City Boy's ability, we don't know, but he seems to have the ability to sort of almost peer into the underbelly of a city, and he's got a, almost a subconscious ability to locate anything in a city, and it almost like the city speaks to him in some way, and there's a it was a particularly interesting scene, where, and you can tell it's an origin scene, where... He was uh, he was, you know, sort of dragged into a lair uh, where it looks like some some person is doing sort of an experiment that where they're trying to bond with the consciousness of the city. I actually got some Ram V vibes, interestingly enough, how currently in the pages of Detective Comics, you know, uh, Ram V, uh, the, the the or the. Orgum family is trying to sort of create a, a neural network of in the underbelly of Gotham, and, the, and they are, they're building a thalamus machine in order to create a. Uh, to- to, almost as if Gotham has a consciousness of its own. This idea of the city having consciousness is obviously played up here, and it makes sense that this particular machine goes awry, and there's this sort of mad scientist who I suspect is Dessaud, because we see Darkseid at the end of the issue. I I, I suspect it's Dessaud in disguise trying to create consciousness in the city of, for the city of Metropolis, and um, it, it ends up infecting this young Cameron, and then he gains this ability to be. To he gains his abilities, and interestingly enough, this at the end of this issue, a boss Chung continues to abuse him and threatens the life of Fujimoto, and looks like he even harms Fujimoto, his friend, and eventually cameron sort of snaps and breaks and he loses control of his powers and just you know or or rather may not maybe not lose control but he really aggressively uses them and when he does so that that sets off some detection equipment and intergang detects that particular energy that city boy gives off and it looks like intergang is working in conjunction with dark Side. and so that's pretty cool i really really like that angle I love I love that this this pulls dark side into the equation <laughs> and uh, they're being I love the idea of the consciousness of the city and city boy gains that power. Maybe it's a consequence of maybe a dark side, or is this related to some sort of something that dark side was looking on? I mean, imagine if any villain had that power to control the consciousness of various cities for Gotham city, metropolis, how you could use that against Superman or Batman. So it's a power set that if you're a villain, you really want your hands on it. And no, of course, dark side would want that. So anyways, I thought that was just really, I I thought it was really nice. I'm, I'm really, excited I, I love how this story began by tugging at the heartstrings and i loved how it ended by showing us pure evil with dark side so i'm looking forward to the next issue yeah
0: you know i mentioned superman not showing up dark side does that's certainly a way to tie city boy into the greater dcu and yeah completely unexpected you talk about somebody who has the power to communicate with cities that's pretty grounded it feels pretty sort of small in scope and then Pac pulls a rug out from under us and widens the scope immensely in the, the space of a few panels with uh, Mannheim showing up, uh, inner gig thug, as Rocky said, uh, working for Darkseid. So. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Unstoppable Doom Patrol, issue number three. This is from writer Dennis Cole. Chris Burnham is the artist. Brian Reber does the colors. Pat Brussel on letters. And we get uh, some guest appearances here by Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner. So uh, what did you think of this issue?
1: I thought this issue was almost comic relief. I I I was entertained by this issue. I I thought the dialogue was fun. I thought the uh, I thought the the uh, the ramblings back and forth between uh, Kyle Rayner and uh, Guy Gardner were were quite humorous, and uh, you know I, I thought it was quite I thought it was hilarious because basically we were introduced well this <laughs> the, the new character called Starbro which is uh, essentially this young man possessed by Starro, but he's not quite a typical victim of Starro, and, he's, and he, he likes the name Starbro. And even even the name of this issue, the title of this issue, is Doom Patrol in The Fast and the Nebulous. And so it's actually a, it, this, this entire issue or a good portion of it was essentially the Doom Patrol fleeing and trying to escape from Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. And it's really Kyle Rayner and uh, Guy Gardner sort of talking about their frustrations with the Doom Patrol and then Starro the Conqueror uh, who's in the form of this Starbro is is in the back and we got Negative Man and Robot Man and they basically – they, they basically want to take, they, they want to essentially help this kid out and they, they start calling him star bro or robot man thinks it's a bad idea to call him star bro. And then negative man tells him, Hey, call the kid what you want. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of dialogue back and forth. And some of the dialogue I thought, I, I thought the dialogue worked quite well. I got to give credit to Dennis Culver. I, I actually like his use of dialogue here. I actually thought it was comical. I thought he did a, I thought he did a pretty good job and i like the fact that you know this is building on the idea that the doom patrol is like the dc's version of the x men and while i don't like playing comparisons like, like that it's kind of what they are but with their own twist that they're going to they want to rescue metahumans or or kids, or or people who maybe are uh, having a hard time dealing with their powers, and maybe feel out, like outcasts. They want to take them in, and uh, well, with their with their own special abilities, and the fact that they can relate to them, they figure that they're a better fit for them than Arkham Asylum, or maybe becoming the odd man out on a superhero team. They actually need training, they need help, and they need love and compassion and caring, and that's uh, what the Doom Patrol uh, brings to the table, and. I thought that this issue was so much fun. I mean, the car chase—how they, how how Negative Man distracted Guy Gardner and and uh, Kyle Rayner, and then uh, threw through a building, and they managed to lose them. Only to uh, only at the end for them to meet up again. Kyle Kyle Rayner and the Green Lanterns eventually catch up with them. And um, interesting enough, uh, they're flying through. They're flying. They're, that. Pardon me. They're driving through Smallville, and it says Smallville, home of Superboy, which I thought was very interesting because I didn't think that Superman had a Superboy career in this particular Dawn of the DCU. So I'm surprised it says home of Superboy, but maybe that's referring to Connor Kent. I don't know, but it looks like it's a young, younger Superman. So I thought that sign. I think that sign is 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 off a little bit, but that's just me being uh, nitpicky. But. I I, en- I enjoyed the issue. I enjoyed the issue. Uh, the the Smallville sign that I just complained about uh, was uh, pretty much destroyed by Guy, by Guy Gardner stopping uh, stopping the Doom Patrol from escaping. And it was uh, uh, it's it ends with the introduction, I think, of a new character, Mister um, Drew, and I'm not sure who Mister Drew is. it's a new character to me. And, uh, somebody delivers to Mr. Drew, the remains of, I believe it was, I believe it was the character that was killed last issue, uh, the brain and, uh, I, Monsieur Mala. yeah, Monsieur Mala. I think that's the head of, um, Monsieur Mala. Uh, the, the robotic head of him is delivered to this Dr. Drew and this Dr. Drew seems to be quite happy that there's going to be a war now. So, uh. Again, not a heck of a lot happens in this issue, but it was so fun, so entertaining. I love the art. I thought the art. I mean, uh, kudos to the uh, artist uh, Chris Burnham. Did a fantastic job. And uh, even I even love the uh, one of the cover alternate covers with Guy Guy Gardner hitting uh, Robot Man. I think was is by uh, I think that looks like Michael Janine's. Uh, uh, Mikel Janine's uh, cover looks really good. So all in all, I, am going to have a hard time picking what cover I want for this particular issue of doom patrol issue three. And I really enjoyed the, I really enjoyed the issue itself. What about you? Yeah. Alan Alan Kwa, um, variant is
0: fantastic as well with a Elastigirl looking huge on the cover, but that's a a one in 25. So it probably won't, probably won't grab that one, but yeah, this is just really fun. And you're right. The art's fantastic um robot man and uh and negative man you know trying to keep this star bro away from the lanterns fleeing in this car it's a grand torino it's recognizable as a grand torino amazing job um, by uh by chris burnham on the art like you mentioned uh i i think they're sort of running out of puns to use for starro right we have starro we have jarro now we have star bro (laughs) that's <laughs> the only one I can think of that they haven't used is Caro. So maybe at some point we'll get a Starro car hybrid. Uh, maybe it'll even have its origins in this particular issue since they were fleeing in a car. Who knows? Um, so, yeah, this was just wildly entertaining. The one thing I, I find a little, I don't want to say strange, but maybe surprising was that, you know, this is a, a limited series. And, you know, and, and speaking of Dennis Culver previously, I know he has more ideas beyond just these six issues. We had the first two issues. They they felt like they tied in a lot closer than this third issue has to do with the first two issues. The way the second issue ended with kind of a little bit of a plot twist, I sort of thought the next issue, issue three, would sort of dive into that, flesh it out a little bit. Instead, it's a complete departure and we get almost a standalone issue showing us really what the Doom Patrol is out there doing. And yeah, you can't help if you're a longtime comic reader, you can't help but – you know, think about the X Men and, and you know what they do and trying to save mutants from being hounded and persecuted, or whatever. And that's exactly what the Doom Patrol is doing here. So there are some comparisons again that you you sort of can't can't help but notice. Uh, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's super entertaining. The art is top notch, uh, and you don't need any prior knowledge of uh, Doom Patrol to read this. And Culver, he's doing such a great job of integrating classic. Pre weirdness Doom Patrol, pre Grant Morrison Doom Patrol, with the weirdness of Morrison, with you know Flex uh, Mentallo and all those weird, all the weird stuff that went on with the weird characters and, and whatnot. So, fantastic job, really entertaining, highly recommended.
1: And uh, I'm glad you brought up Peacemaker again because uh, Peacemaker, or, or rather, uh, Peacemaker showed up in Green Arrow this month at the end of Green uh, at the end of Green Arrow. Uh, facing off against Roy Harper and uh Black Canary. Peacemaker showed up at the end of Doom Unstoppable Doom Patrol issue two. And they're also showing up in a they also showed Peacemaker also showed up in their first issue of Titans the end, in the middle of the Titans. So clearly it's it's building on that Amanda Waller, that whole that whole scheme of killing off all of heroes and and something is amiss, something's going on. And so it's it's nice that it's it's nice. I like that DC so far is kind of doing it right that we can enjoy these individual comic books for what they are, just themselves. But for those of us who are longtime readers that maybe we're buying more than one title, we're getting those Easter eggs. And we're, we're starting to see the remnants or the, we're starting to see the, the puzzles, the puzzle being filled in on a larger picture. And I like that. I hope it pays off. I hope it pays off. And I hope it just doesn't end up being a bunch of red skies. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll see.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. Up next, Harlan, issue number thirty, written by Tinny Howard, Sweeney Boo on art and colors, Steve Wands on letters. And then there is a, a backup story. Uh, let me get to the the credits for that. Because um, man, I'm not. I'm to be honest, I'm not really sure how I feel about the backup story. Uh, but it's written by uh, Nicole Maines. Mindy Lee does the art and colors with Hassan Atman Elhow on on letters. So. Um, yeah, this, this picks up right where the last issue left off with what Titty's doing with this sort of multiversal adventure that Harley is on. The Sweeney Boo art really captures kind of the whimsical tone of the story very, very well. This feels so different from any Harley that I've ever read before. Certainly different from the most recent run uh, on Harley that Stephanie Phillips did and then the previous run to that where she was a little more grounded uh, same thing as when she appeared in James Tynan's run on Batman. It's somewhat of a grounded character in the Joker war. Um, this is out there and whimsical and, and humorous and what have. You. It's not my particular cup of tea, um, but this issue, Captain Carrot shows up. It, it totally makes sense and it's fun. And I imagine a lot of Harley fans are probably enjoying it, but it, it definitely leans back more toward the, the zany Harley uh, that we've had in the past, it's been wildly successful. Which is sort of my least favorite version of Harley. So this is definitely not a not a comic that's for me. And uh, the backup with with Harley as this knight of the realm, if you will, um, sort of a fairy tale story with her looking to go kiss the the Sleeping Beauty princess to to awaken her, uh, which is actually Poison Ivy. But then, and Harley's dreaming. You know, these backups are Harley's dreams, and then Harley wakes up right before she gets a chance to kiss poison Ivy and is all upset that she didn't get to kiss Ivy in the dream, but really doesn't land that well because she wakes up. Ivy's right there in bed next to her. Wouldn't kiss her in real life anyway. Who cares if you didn't get to kiss her in your dream, just roll over and kiss her. So anyway, it it was okay. It's probably great for Harley fans of which I don't
1: count myself. So uh, for me, it was just, you know, okay. What what are your thoughts? Well, I, Actually, just my, my first comment about the backup is that I, I feel it's it's narratively wasted. Uh, I know that the backup is written by Nicole Mains, and uh, I know that she sort of got her feet wet writing as the Dreamer in the CW network, uh, and then and also she she wrote she wrote a couple of issues for for I think uh, Adventures of Superman in the first eighteen issue run there uh, when the Dreamer showed up with john kent and in any event but this narratively this backup was like i say it's i it sort of reminds me of the the backup of for, of the joker stories in uh the, the the man who can't stop laughing or whatever that where it just seems to be uh what the joker dreams the crazy dreams of the joker has this is a dream that uh harley quinn has and i don't know i guess it's 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 all well and good but I have a bias that I really want Harley Quinn's stories to actually have some semblance of relatability to the mainstream DC universe, even in a crazy or zany sense. And that's simply, in my view, that's that's not, that's not, that has not been what has been happening. But in any event, the main story itself I thought was, uh, well, was better. And Girl in a Crisis Part 3, this is a, a one of the things that was established in at the beginning of uh, Teeny Howard's run was that uh, Harley Quinn through reasons of which Carly Quinn does not understand, she finds herself being uh, transported all over the multiverse, and she ended up with a vorpal fish, uh, a fish, and and uh, a lady quark from Earth 48 warned her saying, look, you're a danger to the multiverse, Harley, and because that vorpal fish was very important for somebody, because that vorpal fish would have saved somebody's life, but you doomed and you hurt somebody because of it. You're messing with the multiverse. Well, Lady Quark. That that didn't really make a lot of sense. Lady Quark. I don't know how Lady Quark could blame Harley for something which Harley had nothing to do with. It wasn't Harley's fault. She's got no control. While she's flopping, why she why she's flopping all over the multiverse? But in any event. We now know what the consequences are of the of the dislocation of that Vorpal Fish, because Captain Carrot and the Amazing Zoo Crew were battling not Darkside, but Backside, the evil Backside, and who was basically this giant shark-looking character. And without the Vorpal Fish, the Amazing Zoo Crew—they're all killed, and the sole survivor is Captain Carrot. And so Harley Quinn takes it upon herself to take the... She wants to return the vorpal fish as quickly as she can to Captain Carrot uh, so that he can use it to defeat Backside. But unfortunately, she gets there too late because um, she gets there too late only to discover uh, that uh, the the Amazing Zooker is dead and Captain Carrot is very upset. Now, how Harley Quinn gets there is that she... Somehow she she acquires the blueprints of a cosmic treadmill, and she builds her own cosmic treadmill, and she has her two multiversally possessed hyenas, Bud and Lou, uh, to uh, run on the cosmic treadmill. I didn't know they had super speed powers, but obviously, whatever we think we know of how the cosmic treadmill works, I don't know if Teeny Howard, Teeny Howard, is sort of making up her own rules as she goes, and I guess that's fine. I thought you have to be a speedster to to activate the cosmic treadmill, and you you know, you or I couldn't just run on the treadmill and start jogging, and boom, we're, we're in another multiverse. That's not how it works. But uh, in any event, um, she uses the cosmic treadmill and does end up in Captain Carrot's uh, Captain Carrot's universe. And uh, I gotta I gotta say, Sweeney Boo's rendition of Captain Carrot, the Amazing Zoo Crew. Uh, it it sort of threw me a bit, but I kind of like it. It is funny. It's, it's her own very unique style. I give her credit for it. I I thought, I thought it worked. I thought it was, I thought it was fun. She's really good at drawing a very angry Captain Carrot. He's very resentful and angry at, uh, at Harley Quinn because after all, uh, you know, he, he blames her for whatever, stealing the, the vorpal fish and, um, not returning it in a more timely manner or fashion. But in any event, I have no idea where this story is going. Uh, but I it is imaginative, it is fun. I have to admit my enjoyment of the story, which I think is kind of crazy, it's enhanced by Sweeney Boo's art, which I think kind of fits the craziness of the narrative. So I'm I'm actually I find myself actually enjoying this despite not being big fans of the narrative, but damn I I can't help but love Captain Carrot, and whenever I see him I always I'm always glued to the story. So I, I'm I'm kind of on the fence on this one.
0: Yeah, I mean I can't remember the last time I saw Lady Quark show up in a story. I love Lady <laughs> Quark. So yeah. She's a fascinating character. So right there, that's bonus points. All right, moving on. Uh, we're winding down with issues on Tim Drake Robin toward the end, written by Megan Fitzsimmons, Nicola Samigia on art, Lee Leffridge does colors, Josh Reed on letters. It's issue number nine. Uh, the Chaos Monsters, who showed up in that first three-part series where we first – saw Bernard and Tim go on a date and sort of start their fledgling relationship and <clears throat> hints of, of Tim uh, exploring his sexuality. Um, they're showing back up. There's a lot of angst. There's a lot of uh, emotionality from Bernard and Tim both. Thinking back to those early days, the mystery was never really solved of who's behind the chaos monsters. What do they want? There's even hints here that Maybe Bernard himself may not be who he appears to be, uh, which I find to be interesting. Could this whole thing have been a sort of a deep fake? Of him. Um, where will that leave Tim Drake if that's the case? Um, meanwhile, you have a, a nearly unhinged Batwoman who's sort of really struggling with the fact that she just showed up, sort of came to consciousness. Uh, uh, hands covered in blood, not understanding what's going on. W- what do the chaos monsters have to do? She's accused of killing a child. So she's very upset about that. What exactly is going on? There's mystery here. There's tension. There's drama. And a real sense of of Tim really trying to establish his identity, right? Which just when he, he thinks he sort of has this idea of, of who he is and for the first time he's not trying to fulfill the expectations of others, trying to live up their... Sort of perceived notion whether he he's projecting that as hey you know my father thinks i'm going to be this or my uh bruce wayne thinks i'm going to be this or my classmates expect me to be this you know trying to fill those expectations of others this whole series has been about him trying to really find himself who what's his self-identity um and if we talk about bernard having fooled him or the chaos monsters having fooled him or this whole thing having been some sort of fever dream like, what is that going to do to Tim Drake? Where is that going to leave him? I find that to be really interesting. Um, I don't know if Nicholas Emeji is the best artist for this. Um, I will say that his art here is much cleaner than where we've seen it before. Uh, things like the, the recent Asriel series that he did. Um, it's cleaner, it's tighter, but it's still not what I would consider DC house style. This series has not had that throughout. Um, it's kind of similar to Batgirls in a way where I think if it had a little bit more traditional comic, people may have perceived it better. Um, when we talk about Batgirls, there was some, you know, a few things about that that maybe longtime DC readers weren't 100% on board with. Certainly the feel that they had aged down Cassandra Kane and then with with the artist that was on it just never felt like it gelled here you know, a lot of people aren't necessarily on board with the changes that uh, Megan Fitzmartin has been sort of exploring with Tim Drake. And then you had Riley Rosmo who can be a divisive artist as well to start. And now you're going to Nicholas Medjia. It's like, you know, we were talking about DC editorial earlier. Who's like, who's making these decisions? Who's deciding, like, don't you want to give the series like its best chance to succeed? And if you're trying something a little more experimental narratively, then you probably don't want to experiment with the art. You know, you want to keep it pretty traditional and vice versa. If you're doing a real traditional story, then maybe you can be a little more experimental with the art, right? You have things like Green Arrow, even though, you know, it's felt like it's moved along pretty slowly so far for the first couple of issues, or even Justice Society, it's felt like it's moved along pretty slow. The stories feel very traditionally super heroic in the DC style. And you've got very traditional DC comic artists on there. So, you know, again, it's like if you're going to experiment with one thing, maybe don't experiment with the LL because then you're sort of, I feel like putting yourself, you know, behind the eight ball in the eyes of the fans. But I don't know, maybe that's just me. I mean, the art is not bad by any stretch of the imagination. Great storytelling, but the line work, the textures, the backgrounds, it's just not what you typically would see. It's more in the horror vein than, you know, traditional superhero uh, art. And that works if you're talking about something like Arkham City, New World Order, which, uh, which had, you know, a kind of a different style of art or the, even the Azrael series, like I was talking about, um, that was a little more in the horror or supernatural vein, as opposed to this, which is, this is Tim Drake Robin. It doesn't get much more classically DC superheroic than Robin. So, Yeah, not sure that it's the best choice of artists. And again, not to say the art is bad, just don't know that it matches up with the tone of the story that uh, DC's wanting to tell here. So uh, I know you haven't been a fan of this series uh,
1: overall, Rocky. What'd you think of this issue? Well, uh, just a couple of things that that sort of threw me. Does this story, this story must take place before before the previous arc? Because in this one, it says at one point, Tim Drake is talking to Bernard and Bernard's hitting the punching bag. Uh, and he says, careful, Robin, Bernard doesn't know you are Tim. And yeah, so, yeah. and so no, that, Bernard, this must've taken place before. No no, 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 it doesn't take place before
0: it, in the last issue. It's clear that Bernard knows that Tim Drake is Robin, but Tim doesn't know that Bernard has not told Tim, I know you're Robin. So Tim thinks that Bernard doesn't know.
1: Oh, I thought, Bernard, I thought Bernard told him last issue no, that he knew. No, no,
0: Oh, okay. it, it, it became clear last issue that Bernard knew from them, you know, and, and again, you and I were both like, man, how can Bernard be so stupid? It's his boyfriend. Right. They've been in, whatever sitting right next to him. How does he not know? Right. Uh, and it's clear that Bernard knew from the first time he encountered Tim Drake in costume that Bernard knew it was Tim Drake. Yeah, but uh, and again, this doesn't speak very well. That Tindric's supposed to be an intelligent guy; he doesn't even realize that Bernard knows that he's yeah. Robin.
1: Well, uh, well, thank you for that clarification. I, I will say that uh, you're right. I've not been a fan of the storyline. I this is not this does not meet my my particular uh, definition of <laughs> great storytelling. Uh, I'm, i I find myself I still don't know what the chaos monster was. I'm still confused as to I was confused as to what a chaos monster was when. I still don't know. I, I still don't know what a Chaos Monster is. What, it, how it originated? What it was? I can't remember. I, I'm not inclined to remember, and I don't want to remember. I, I, I just want this, this this series to end, and I'm, I'm glad it's over. I, I do find it funny that Bernard suddenly knows how to swing a bat. He knows how to throw a punch. I always thought that this guy, this guy did nothing useful. Now suddenly he's he knows how to, well, at least he knows how to hit a punching bag. Uh, I, I would have liked to have seen like. There's no question that this issue and the issue before. I would have, uh, if I think it's probably. Even though I'm, I still don't like it. It's still better than anything that came before it, and uh, I just, I think it's going to be a long time till Megan Fitzmartin maybe gets her feet going until she tells a story that this I I think just resonates you know that that I can re- really catch on to. I'm. Uh, the best thing in this issue for me was the art. I thought the art had a really great horror feel to it. Uh, the the final page when the chaos monster, which I didn't know the chaos monster has multiple heads or something, it just overwhelms Tim Drake. But it's really cool. I, I thought visually, I thought it worked for me. I uh, I'm curious to see. Uh, I am I'm a little curious to see how this story ends. I'm actually really curious to see what DC does with with uh tim drake and bernard and then what the relationships how it's going to be handled moving forward uh once this title's canceled and this moves forward because uh, it's going to be interesting to see whether bernard's is going to be a flash in the pan and tim drake's going to move on or if they're going to uh just out of lost uh, out of pride uh they're just going to keep bernard as a straggler character uh as tim drake moves forward in other titles but uh all in all, it's, it, this this was uh, same old, same old for me with Tim Drake. You and I had a few good debates on, on this series, probably some of our best ones. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, it's not my cup of tea, but uh, I, I can understand where you're coming from and a lot of your comments in terms of what I can appreciate what Fitzmartin was trying to do. I just think that the execution wasn't, uh, wasn't to my liking.
0: Well, Bernard might not have to hang around if he turns out to be part of, chaos monster if he turns out to be a villain if he turns out you know to be something that we didn't realize he was because you're right he hasn't really shown like physical attributes like he does in this issue with you know going to town on the punching bag swinging a bat looking much more you know physically formidable than he has in the past and that that's what's got me wondering like does he have more to do like why did the chaos monster choose to to um choose to kidnap him in the first place. And, and there's more, it's, you know, like one lead chaos monster and then like, you know, other followers, it, it is a group. So yeah. What, what does he, cause I got this vibe that man, he's knows something more about it, or he's involved in it more than he's letting on. So, you know, if it turns out that he's behind it or worked with them or the cause of it in some way, it may not matter. Tim won't be, ha- you know, won't have a long term relationship with him. He may be just, you know, sort of a, almost a B or C list villain that just goes away and whether somebody picks them up to use later on, you know, we'll have to wait and see. So, yeah. uh, all right, <laughs> moving on. We have uh, static shadows of Dakota issue. Number four written by Nicholas Draper, Ivy and Vita Ayala art by Nicholas Draper, Ivy additional colors, uh, by Will Katana for pages one through six letters by Anne roll design. Um, both, uh, Draper Ivy and Vita Ayala have done a fantastic job on this. When Vita Ayala did the, the, the first season, they did a great job of of focusing on family and really sort of tying in and making it feel classic with the sort of original first go-round with Static. And Draper Ivy, along with Crisscross, Cross, handled a lot of the art. It was clear that Draper Ivy had a lot of uh, love and and history with Static. And it's great to see that he's gotten a chance to join Vita Ayala in, in writing this series. For me, this issue four is the best one yet. It leans into this idea of the boogeyman and who he is. I sort of feel like he's, he might be related in some way to Quincy because um, he's so focused on the fact that, that Quincy is missing and the art is, is fantastic. I mean, the art has been great on the series throughout, Um But this goes even beyond that, especially when we start talking about the colors and this ominous dark feel that the colors have with Quincy missing throughout the issue with the boogeyman up with Virgil's static, you know, doing everything he can to try to find him, really stretching himself thin. And then just a brutal emotional gut punch at the end when you find out that Quincy's gone, right? Like the whole, whole neighborhood just searching for him, the community's searching for him and static, you know, Uh, comes home, Virgil comes home after searching for him and, and uh, a run in with the boogeyman himself with, with the boogeyman, not, not wanting to pull any punches, willing to, to kill and torture and do whatever, uh, in order to, to, to rescue Quincy, to find him before it's too late and static, you know, he just doesn't go in for that sort of thing. And and sort of a philosophical difference there that that makes you think like, wow, who, you know, does the boogeyman have a point here? when it's a kid's life at stake, shouldn't you do whatever you can? Uh, but then he comes into the idea of, well, whose life is worth more sort of thing. And then Virgil gets home and he finds out from his parents that, yeah, we found Quincy. He's gone. Uh, I take that to mean he's been killed. And I, I, you know, I was waiting for a flight. I had to go to DC for work last week and I'm sitting there waiting for my return home flight. And I'm reading this in the, the air and I'm just like, wow, Holy shit. Like not what I was expecting at all just brutal, you know, like not that static is like, you know, YA sunshine and rainbows kind of thing, it, you know, it was very, the first go round of milestone was very gritty and, and realistic, but I, I just, I didn't expect it. I just didn't expect it. Cause Quincy's such a, you know, a, a positive character and a, and a happy character, you know, smart kid, role model kind of thing um, just to have him, Like like, both Vita Ayala and Draper Ivy did a good job of making Quincy a very likable character, a very sympathetic character that you sort of rooted for. And you you love that sort of big brother, little brother relationship between him and Virgil. And then he's just gone. He's just taken off the the playing field here. He doesn't show up in this issue at all. He's missing the whole – we don't get any hints that he might be rescued or whatever. And then at the end, you find out he's gone. It's just – like it was such an emotional – Powerful emotional moment. So, credit to uh, Draper, Ivy, and Ayala um, for for this issue because I thought it was fantastic. The art again that somber, dark um, color palette that that Ivy used along with a Sis from from rural Quintana. Yeah, just I, I thought this was the best issue yet. Like such an impact with uh, with Quincy gone, and it makes you wonder: Is Static then going to think back to those things that the Boogeyman told him? Is he going to cut loose? Is he going to, you know, change his mind, change his outlook, change his philosophy? Oh, the boogeyman was right. If I would have been more harsh on these guys, I might have found uh, Quincy sooner. I might have been able to save him. You know, probably can't help but, but think that. Like, it's where's the guilt going to go? What's it ha- what effect is it going to have? What are the consequences of of Quincy's death if he is indeed dead? Um, what what you know? What's that going to have? what are those consequences going to have? What effect is that going to have on static and Virgil and and the rest of the, the bang babies and what have you. So um, fantastic job, Uh, very intimate story in a way, but at the same time, big in scope when you talk about the the city of Dakota and and the bang babies and the far reaching effects Um, and this almost um, vigilante rebellion type movement that, look down on the bang babies. And that's sort of represented by even the police, even when Quincy's Quincy's, uh, parents go to the police early on in the issue and they're saying, Hey, you haven't done anything. And they're so dismissive. I just ran away. These bang babies, they're bad news, blah, blah, blah. You know, like again, the scope and the consequences of everything that's um, happened because of what uh, Avila did um, in releasing the gas and what have you just it all ties in like Rocky was saying with the little Easter eggs for DC with Amanda Waller and Peacemaker and what have you, we're getting the same thing in the milestone books. And it's uh it's very rewarding if you're reading more than one book. So uh,
1: what were your thoughts about this issue of static? Uh, well, actually it was the conversation with the police officer uh, because it, it sort of filled in the blanks and, you know, it's funny, there's, you know, there's a lot of talk sometimes in certain circles about, you know, how politics and city politics and, Particularly, politics surrounding the involvement of police and police brutality and the actions of the police—that handling that in comic books can be sometimes problematic in the eyes of some readers. I think in this, I think in this issue, of Static, it's handled very, very well. It, it's easy to understand if you've been following along in the first volume of six issues, and this is the fourth issue of the s- second volume. Uh, Where the bang babies come along, there was a spike in crime. There was these, uh, there was these protests as gas was used, a lot of bang babies, a lot of. A lot of uh, teenagers, uh, younger kids were infected and they gained various powers and there was various government forces and various vigilante forces and other forces that want to control these kids. Some want to kill them, some want to use them for their own and they're being abused and Static and his friends want to protect the bang babies. And the police are sort of sick of it because they see a spike in crime. And so when they know that this young young uh Genius like Protege Quincy has gone missing. They don't really, they just sort of view it as, oh, well, just another bang, baby, another issue. And they don't even issue a search party. They don't even they don't act quickly enough. And, you know, that really enhances some of one of the some of the things that the boogeyman says to Virgil at the end when they're fighting. And the boogeyman wants to use lethal force against these guys that Virgil is questioning. And Virgil, of course, doesn't believe in killing. He wants to do, you know, he has, he's got a different moral compass, obviously. boogeyman is saying, well, you know, basically, look, you don't realize you, you can't be a pussy. I mean, you, you can't use kids' gloves here. This is the real world, kid. Get out of my way. You know, I'm not going to kill you, but I mean, because I, I know you mean well, but, you know, your methods don't work. Mine will. And you can't help but be sympathetic with some of the things that the boogeyman is saying, especially when you know of, uh, of the frustrations that they must have with the police, because you got to wonder if the police had acted quicker. Would Quincy still be alive? Now and Now, even though we're led to believe at the end that Quincy is gone, uh, we know at the end of last issue it was hinted that Quincy was likely going to be possibly experimented upon or something of the kind i I don't believe Quincy is gone. I don't believe he's dead. maybe he is if he is that even if he isn't that I, I still give props to to this creative team because i I like uh, Quincy. I feel his absence i he was a cute kid i you, it was impossible not to love the kid, not like him I love the kid. And I don't want him to be dead. If he's actually really dead, boom. Uh. But I, I guess it's because it's comic books. I like to believe, and you know, I, I want to wait for the resurrection or wait, wait to the misdirection, and he's still alive. I'm hoping he's still alive. But regardless, this was a very well written issue, and uh, so far in the second volume, it's. Uh, I'm enjoying the second volume more than the first than the setup six issues. I'm enjoying this more than the first, and so and that's really good news. It tells me that Vida Ayala, she continues to get better. Uh, and this and the art here is fantastic, and so yeah, I got to give this high props. Yeah, they they continue to get better. Yes, they. I stand corrected. Yes. Yeah,
0: I, I feel the same way. Like we were such a fan of the first six issues, for this to be even better. I mean, that's that's what you want, right? You want the next arc to be better than last. So, uh, props, and I give. And whenever I mention um, online on Twitter how great this series is. Vita is always very quick to give all the, the praise and all the credit to, to Draper Ivy. Um, she's they just say uh, I, uh, I'm just sort of along for the ride. it's all it's all Nicholas because uh, I think this is the first time that he's written anything and and I'm sure they're there as a as a resource, right. Vita's there as a resource for, for Nicholas but yeah, I don't I don't I don't want to sell uh, Vita short by any means because I think they, they're they offering a, a contribution. But yeah, a lot of credit to Draper Ivy. And I think it shows, like I said, how much he just loves this property, how much he's invested and how passionate he is for the characters, so. Uh, all right, up next, we have uh, Sandman Universe, Dead Boy Detectives, issue six, final issue of the series. Pornsack Peach Chote is the writer, Jeff Stokely on pencils, Craig Talier and Jeff Stokely on inks, Miguel Morto on colors, Hassan Otsman Elhau on letters, uh, this was a, a satisfying conclusion. But at the same time, it, it sort of felt a little anticlimactic in a way. Like, we, you know, we already knew who was behind everything. You know, we already kind of knew the, the broad strokes of the story and this girl that died and her father was trying to resurrect her and messed around with magic he shouldn't have and sort of broke things, if you will. And then we have this witch who's, uh, you know, long-time um, – Sandman universe character, um, and, and the, the hints that come in here about uh, when she showed up recently in Tynan's, um, the, the, the series he's house? doing, the glass house, uh, not, not the glass house. The one that came before that, what was it? Uh, uh night, night, Oh, nightmare. country. Uh, uh, yeah, nightmare country, nightmare county. I can never remember if it's country or county. But anyway, when she showed up there, there was almost this feel that she was somewhat of an, uh, an uh, a protagonist, like somebody that you would actually root for. Right? She shows up in these pages, and based on what she does, and and you know, even though things work out for the dead boy detectives for the most part, it's sort of to her surprise and her chagrin. That that it worked. She's like, ah, you know, I'm su- I'm surprised. I sort of figured that they would be destroyed, and it, certainly she wasn't going to shed any tears if that were the case. So Thessaly clearly has her own plans and her own machinations, and it, it's a big reminder. Like, I take anything away from this issue, it's that you can't trust Thessaly. She's clearly out for her own. Why she's so hell bent on. Connecting with the spirit of Madison Flynn, who is you know sort of the the driving force behind uh, Nightmare Country, both the the original volume and the the current volume, the Glass House, like that's all yet to be determined. So, it, so it almost felt like with with those revelations and with Thessaly showing up here and with her behavior, it almost took away some of the agency and some of the impact of the dead boy detective story but i give credit to uh, porn sack for leaving this open and leaving the dead boy detectives in an interesting place where um there's it feels like there's still more dead boy detective stories to be told um i, I have to admit that I, I probably would get a little more out of it if, if it was a little more relatable i mean the fact that porn sack you know he's he's an asian uh, he's uh, comes from asian heritage that's his heritage and we dealt a lot with a lot of Thai ghosts here, and it was just and and Thai mythologies and and you know their sort of horror tropes and what have you. And it's just hard for me to have a any sort of touchstone on that because I'm not familiar with familiar with it at all. So if he does come back to Dead Boy Detectives, I hope he uses something that's just selfishly for me because I am a fan of pointing. I hope he uses something that I have a little more uh, relatability to because I think I'll get more out of it. And that's not to say I didn't get anything out of this because I did. It wasn't an interesting story. I just didn't get as much out of it as I would. It would have felt more personal if I had a personal connection to it, which I which I don't, you know. And again, that's fine because I'm hoping that brings in new readers, readers that do have a personal connection to it, that are fans of Porn Sack. Maybe they read his uh, Good Asian, uh, Eisner-nominated Good Asian series, which is just fantastic. Um, <laughs> it's being developed into a, a TV show, you know, whenever the writer strike ends. Um, and maybe somebody will watch the show though. Oh, I've got to go seek out things that porn sack wrote. They'll find this, they'll love it. They'll have that re- relatability, um, to, to, uh, Eastern horror, Thai horror, what have you, uh, that I don't have. So I'm glad it exists. Um, but again, I'm, and I'm being totally selfish. I admit that. Um, I hope if he does come back to the dead boy detectives, that it's a story where I have a little bit more context for, uh, if you will. So, uh, but he did a good job of making it you know, new reader friendly and accessible for people that weren't familiar with uh, with those those sort of tropes. Um, but again, it, it just felt like it would have resonated with me more had I had more uh, familiarity with uh, with those aspects of the story. So, um, and the art was fantastic, Stokely throughout. Um, not a house style at all, but you wouldn't expect it from a, a horror title. So he, he did a fantastic job. Uh, what, what were your thoughts on the end of the story,
1: Rock? I this story ended with more clarity than the previous two issues i I would uh, I thought that this was up and down I thought the first two issues were clear enough I thought issues three four and then five were a little bit wonky in some of their uh, clarity this one sort of brought it home and spelled things out a little bit more for me in a way that was helpful to me now uh, it might be because I'm not you know I don't have great recollections of my you know because I, I actually got I've read past stories with Thessaly. I, I know she's kind of an iffy character with uh, always having an agenda of her own. And she's, you know, she's 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 just one of those characters that you, you can't really trust because she's, you know, she's got some side deal going on. But I, I really like how this sort of brought home exactly what went on. It helped clarify what the hell was happening in those earlier issues. And that is that, you know, this... This random father who lost his daughter, he went through some basically some satanic rituals to try to get his daughter back. And in attempting to do so, he blurred the line and caused disruption in how death is governed and how the afterlife is governed and ghosts are governed through various cultures. So because each individual culture, each religion and culture in the world has their different idea of an afterlife, a different idea of death, a different conception of what a ghost is, and that's why at the beginning of this series, uh, Charles and Edwin, the dead boy detectives, when they met when they met their friends, who were ghosts from other cultures, they had slightly different rules and different powers than they themselves did, and all the rules themselves slowly began to go into chaos, and what the, Charles and Edwin discover when they talk to Thessaly in this issue is that Thessaly, long story short here, can figure out a way to undo it all, but it requires is a sacrifice on the part of Charles and Edwin. Charles and Edwin is... Charles essentially has to die, give up his life, so that he can restore... Uh, restore the things to the way they were uh, for all his ghost friends. And... Um, it just so happens that the only way to undo that, Thessaly said, is if, is if Thessaly disobeyed the rules herself and did it. And the dead boy detectives essentially encouraged Thessaly to say, look, well, who says you can't do it? Who says you can't break the rules once in a while? What's the worst that can happen if no one else has ever broken the rules? How do you know you can't? So why don't you try breaking the rules? And Thessaly does do that. But Thessaly... Broke, broke the rules and as she reveals, she intentionally went ahead breaking the rules and she broke the rules in such a way, fully intending to kill Charles and Edwin. That was her intention. She thought she had, but they somehow survived and she doesn't know how they survived. She And that's what makes it intriguing. What is so special about the dead boy detectives that even when Thessaly undead and broke the rules herself and restoring all the ghosts and the dead and the undead and everything what what is it about that makes them so special and we don't know yet maybe that's going to reveal at some future date but we do know that at the end Thessaly calls upon Madeline Flynn and Madeline Flynn has her own relationship with the Corinthian over in uh over in uh the whatever the night, nightmare country and in nightmare and, and and in the sequel Nightmare Country the Glass House where Madison Flynn is tied to the soul of the Corinthian who cannot kill or hurt anybody without her consent. And so that's sort of interesting there. So, how, does, how do the dead boys play in with Madison Flynn play into the Corinthian? And also, we should say, Death herself shows up in this issue. We see the back of Death herself uh, when everything is restored, but she doesn't interfere. So, you know, what is the connection between dead boys and death herself? She clearly doesn't seem to have an issue with the dead boys being restored to their former glory. Perhaps it was death herself that protected Charles and Edwin. It was death herself that stepped in and prevented Thessaly from killing them. That's hinted at there. That's just me speculating. It's not directly stated, but it just shows us the back of death. And so, anyways, uh, it's I'm, this issue ended on a high note for me uh, because I... Because of my confusion at, at various parts of the narrative, but it really, I can now understand better. I can fill in the plot holes or what I thought were missing things that I never understood. I can I I could fill them in thanks to this issue. So Parnsack, you know, he nailed the landing for me, and I can I can recommend this series.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Nightwing, number 104, written by Tom Taylor. Travis Moore is the artist. Adriana Lucas handles the colors. Wes Abbott on letters. Uh, and then there is uh, the backup that has uh, Nightwing and John Kent. That's written by uh, C.S. Pacat. The art in, uh, for that backup, this particular issue is by Daniel Hoare. Jonas Trinidad is uh, the inker. Adriana Lucas on colors and Wes Abbott on letters. So we saw at the end of last issue of Nightwing that Neron had given Nightwing superpowers to tempt him into giving up Olivia's soul, uh, because Nightwing has uh, used his his relationship with his sister, who's the you know the mayor of Bloodhaven, to become her her legal uh, guardian, if you will, and Neron needs that soul. Um, it was, I will say it was really fun to see Nightwing with basically the powers of Superman. It was, it was fantastic. If anybody in the DCU deserves to be at that level of power and would use those powers to their utmost ability and, and always be selfless with them, it's Dick Grayson. Then at the same time, you wonder if it doesn't uh, diminish Dick as a character a little bit, the fact that he is so heroic and so often does the right thing. Uh, and is an inspiration, even though he, he doesn't have any powers. So uh, that that was interesting, uh, and I did enjoy that. Um, not the best Travis Moore art. It felt a little rushed. Um, still really solid storytelling. It's just not up to the same level I, I expect from Travis in terms of line work and um, just a real polished feel. Um, but the story itself was a lot of fun, seeing Neron uh, basically get the crap kicked out of them lose on all fronts, even to the point that Raven goes to hell, takes hell away from him uh, and gives it to blaze another long time uh, Titan villain. Um, So we're, we're told that that storylines to be continued in Titans one. So we'll see how that all plays out. Uh, And I'll let you give your thoughts on the the main story before we talk about the backup Rocky.
1: Well, yeah, I I have to say I've, I sound like a broken record every time I talk about Tom Taylor, and unfortunately, it, he keeps getting—he keeps going the opposite way I want him to go. I want more sophistication in the plots. This wasn't it, uh, but I—here I am. I just said that, and yet, paradoxically. I'm going to agree with you on the one hand and say that, yeah, this is kind of a fun issue. But I would describe it as this is a fun issue for someone who really doesn't know anything about Nightwing and just wants to have a casual, relaxing Nightwing read, Nightwing read that you don't read Nightwing very often. You just flip a comic open and, oh, well, it's kind of a, puts a smile on your face. And really, what more do you want from a comic book for your average person? So this is probably all well and good. Nightwing gets his powers. He flies with Superman. Superman says, ah, oh, come with me. You're going to lose your powers in a little bit. Neuron only gave you powers for 24 hours. Come with me. I'm going to show you some great spots to look down at the Earth and, you know, just some good feel-good moments and good good character moments. Tom Taylor knows the dialogue. He knows, he knows the characters of the DC Universe. So if anybody can craft a good conversation for DC characters, it's Tom Taylor. So I can't take anything away from that. I just... I just want, I just, I actually just want a little bit more substance, but I can't deny that this has some fun moments. And in particular, uh, uh, Blockbuster's daughter uh, gives herself a name, Nightbuster, you know, night from for, for Nightwing, and then B- Blockbuster, the last half of her father's name, because she likes, she knows calling herself Nightbuster would just piss off her father, who's dead and undoubtedly rotting in hell, as Neuron hinted. And, um, you know, and then Neuron himself, I'm, I i like, let me give you an example. So one of my criticisms here: This is a feel-good. At no point, at no point in this narrative, do you feel that anybody is in danger. You, you feel good on every page. And that is both a compliment to Tom Taylor and it's also a little bit of a constructive criticism, dare I say, because I never felt that anything was really truly at stake. I never felt that anybody's life was actually in danger. I never for one moment thought that Blockbuster's daughter was going to lose her soul to Neuron. And then to top it off, unbeknownst to all of us, I guess Raven just always had the power to very easily defeat Neuron. She could easily defeat Neuron, and that's exactly what she does. And somehow she's got the power to just strip away Neuron's powers and basically, you know, allow, su- allow another character in the Blaze in the underworld to take over Neuron's uh, role as being the sort of ruler of the underworld. And, I, you know, and then it's hinted at that Raven, that Blaze can see another part, that a part of Raven is missing. And... I, I can't help but think that this is connected to the Titans. And it even says, continued in Titans number one. And this is trotting out plot points that we've seen before years ago in Titans. And that Tom Taylor's rehashing old plot points. Titans number one, I thought was very boring. I thought this, this issue, while it was fun, was still, this, is, this, this isn't a plot that's, that's pulling me in. I'm not This is, this is not, no longer really, it's, it's my last one on the read pile. This week, because I knew it was, I just knew I just had an inkling it was going to be boring because Titans number one was boring. And and it was, it, but it, it, it put a smile on my face. But yeah, but I want some action here. Can, can they do something that involves some action? And so I, I know I'm, I'm sounding maybe a little negative, but I I don't want to. I just I wanted a little bit more and I never got it here. But I got to tell you, I much I, I I preferred the backup much more than I did the main story. On I'll let you know, I'll let you get talking about that. The backup.
0: Yeah. I I mean, as much as I enjoyed this and, but I, I've said like Titans have been guest starring in Nightwing. It's, it's not been as good. It just hasn't been as fun. Like I, I'm ready. I think I said this when we talked about the last issue, I'm ready for Nightwing to go back to being focused on Nightwing. And when I run, want to read about the Titans, I'll go read Titans. Um, so anyway, the backup, uh, you know, I, I, t- I talked about this last time and I said that the, last um, the last backup, the last part of night of the circus felt like it should have been the end of the story. I'm going to say, unfortunately, they needed another chapter because we found out that the little boy trapeze artist had cut his own, uh, had cut the rope himself. And he thought that they would uh, have a net and he would be fine. And it would show his mom that it was dangerous for him to be uh, a trapeze artist. And he would get to have somewhat of a normal childhood. Uh, Instead his mom was on the trapeze when it broke and she almost died and he felt really bad and Nightwing and John Kent figured all that out. And that sort of felt like that should have been the end of the story in a lot of ways, except the whole thing that got them started uh, investigating in the first place was that a bomb had gone off under the big top. And so that little plot thread was still sort of dangling out there. And so C.S. Picot, the writer has to sort of wrap that up and that's what we get in this story. Uh, and it turns out it's a disgruntled worker that was working for the circus, he got fired. Apparently he has knowledge of explosives and he planted a bunch of stuffed animals with explosives around various parts of the the fair or carnival. And John Kent uses his powers, he goes and collects them all. And the day is saved as it were. (laughs) It felt very anticlimactic, it felt very unnecessary. (laughs) Um, And then the other part of it that I didn't care for was it's a different artist. I can't remember who the artist was on the first four parts or five parts. But I remember the art being really, really great. Um, and nothing against Daniel Hor. here. I think that's how you pronounce his name, H-O-R. Um, but this art is just very, uh, very unpolished. Uh, it's clear that he's got talent and he probably with more experience can be a good artist. But there are times where especially the facial features don't look right. John's hair looks terrible throughout. Uh, it just unfinished. Their costumes don't have enough detail. Uh, the backgrounds look very rushed. Uh, yeah, I just didn't think the art was up to par. Uh, I will give him credit for p- pretty solid storytelling and transitions from panel to panel are pretty good, but the art kept pulling me out of the story, which is never a, a good thing, uh, especially on on the few close ups of John's face. Um, and and when he's smiling, it just looks so odd. Um. Again, it was just pulling me out of the story. John's hair constantly like, I couldn't help but think, "What's wrong with his hair?" Um, it just didn't just didn't look right for me. So I, I really, really think they should have quit while they're ahead and, and just put the end at the end of the last story. And yeah, just kind of we don't know who set the bomb. Sweep that under the rug. That's fine. Would have been great. Uh, I would have been happy with that. Yeah, this was a little bit disappointing uh, yeah. for me. Well, so.
1: And, and just to build on what you said, this is uh, was just slightly better than the main story I thought because it was just I, I don't know because it as devoid of a significant plot in my mind as the main story. This one had maybe a tinge more in involved just a little bit of detective work, although not much. <laughs> and yeah. uh, in any event, I just, it, it, it was a, it's a feel good story again. So the main story is a feel good story. The backup's a feel good story. I mean, my God, it's super, it's John Kent giving a teddy bear to a young girl. Come on. Of, of course that's uh that's all well and good. I mean, I mean, how can you, I mean, there's no, you don't have to worry about anyone getting hurt. No one getting, there's no drama here. It's just, it's just all feel good. And you know, it's funny uh, this dawn of the DCU, we we all we want these feel good stories, and there was a time where you and I were practically crying for it. Give us more hope. Give us some. Give us some reason to be happy, and and that's what Tom Taylor has given us. Um, however, I do find that it, it's very very interesting that Tom Taylor seems to have a much better grasp on the out of continuity tales at giving us some drama and some more sophisticated plotting than he does in his mainstream DC stories. I just wish he'd bring some of his, cause I know he's good at uh, Tom Taylor's good at weaving an interesting plot. We've seen that with his Knights of dark Knights of steel, with his uh, w- uh, war of the undead gods. And uh, we deceased, I mean, we, we've, we know that he's capable of that and, just be, you know, he doesn't have to kill. I know Tom Taylor doesn't have to kill off characters like he does in many of his out-of-continuity stories to tell a good story. I just wish that 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 plotting, that he'd bring the plotting to match up to his uh, his good character work. Because I haven't been seeing that. I haven't been seeing as much good plotting in Nightwing to, to match his character work as I would like. Yeah, I wonder if he's stretched too
0: thin. I wonder if that's the problem. He's working on too many things. Yeah. So, uh, Anyway, on to the last book we're going to talk about in detail, Action Comics number 1055, uh, the, the first story, the Superman story, Tech Alive, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, art by Rafa Sandoval, colors by Matt Herms, letters by Dave Sharp. And then we've got the second story, uh, the Lois and Clark story, which is written by Dan Jurgens, art there by Lee Weeks. Uh, let me get to the uh, rest of the credits here. Uh, Elizabeth Brightweiser handles the colors and Rob Lee on letters. <laughs> and then the final story, the John Henry Irons story, uh, which is, we get to the credits, uh, which is written by Dorado Quick. Yasmin Flores Montanez handles the art duties, colors by Brad, and letters by Dave Sharp. So I got a chance to, uh, have dinner with Philip Kenny Johnson when I was in DC. So that was nice. Very nice. Um, yeah, he even brought me one of his comp copies uh, of this issue, so that was fantastic of him. Uh, but anyway, give us your thoughts on uh, on the main story. Uh,
1: well, the 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 main story itself is uh, the the while the Superman family, the I guess, uh, Connell Kent, Connor Kent, all those Superboys, they're they're fighting all these, uh, they're fighting all of uh, of I guess Metallo's. Uh, I don't know, I don't even know what they call them, uh, is, um, or the the corpses, cyborg corpses, I guess, cyborg corpses or something. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't really get, I, you know, I was a little bit unclear. The, the, there's this techno, uh, uh, I think cyborg Superman has taken over. He can, he can take over a lot of the, the tech and, uh, they managed to take over, uh, I'm not even sure what it, what exactly they're doing at the beginning here. I I can't even remember because uh, they're battling. They're battling a lot of the. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't I don't know. It's it's it's. Hank Henshaw is making all these creatures uh, attack attack them, and ultimately uh, to to try to find a way to track because uh, last issue, Superman defeated Metallo and. So Metallo was surprised to hear that Superman would actually help him find his sister, while well, his sister is actually being held captive by the cyborg Superman. And the cyborg Superman, uh, the one way that that's the that Superman uses to find him is that he goes to the Fortress of Solitude. He takes Metallo with him, along with the Super Twins and Superboy and Supergirl. And he actually still has the one of the crystals where he can communicate with the Eradicator. And the Eradicator, uh, well, in a more of a convoluted, complicated storyline. The Eradicator knows how to track cloned Superman uh, because this goes all the way back to the Death of Superman storyline. So the Eradicator does know something on how to track cloned Superman. And so the Eradicator has the technology and the ability to be able to likely locate the cyborg Superman. So they use the Eradicator to do precisely that. And as they're looking for as they're looking for the cyborg superman what i what i actually quite liked i liked the character work that the that Philip Kennedy Johnson does here in the in the communication and the conversations between the Super Twins and Metallo. And it, you can see that Metallo is slowly turning around and Metallo is sort of taken aback. He can feel and experience the compassion and the kindness and the willingness of not just Superman, but even the Super Twins and the whole Superman family to help him find his sister. And he can see that they're not just talking out of their butts, that they genuinely want to do this. And he can see their love for each other. He can see by the way they're talking to each other and the way that they communicate with him, that even the super twins who resent him, the one super twin doesn't like him for, you know, uh, harming his brother. Metallo can relate to the super twins because he can he can appreciate how important it is for a sister to care for a brother or brother to care for a, a younger sister. Uh, because, of course, he can relate to that with his own sister. We also get Metallo's origin, we get, or uh, I guess is... Uh, at the dawn of the DCU origin, in the uh, through the script of Phil, Philip Kennedy Johnson, that uh, Metallo, John Corbin, growing up was abused by his father, very much abused. So with his his mother, he ended up ended up killing his father, and his his sister uh, uh, went into the foster care system. And that that sort of explains John Corbin's upbringing. Very different, of course, than uh, young Clark Kent's. And you could see what what drove John Corbin to uh, the the psychological underpinning of of what maybe made him more susceptible to becoming uh, more evil when when uh, when he was became a Tallow. And in any event, at the end, his he does confront his sister. The cyborg Superman is controlling his sister, and. Uh, that essentially is how it ends. They ultimately confront his sister, and but she's been essentially taken control of by the cyborg Superman, and it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But I, I want to give full props to Philip Kennedy Johnson because while on the surface this was not much happened necessarily, we moved from we we moved from A to B. We just moved the Superman family. Just you know, they just basically they they started the issue looking for. Metallo's sister, and then ended the issue with them finding it. But it was it was the dialogue between all the characters. It was a conversation between Metallo and the Super Twins. It was the some insights into his origin and how he feels about his sister. And it's the juxtaposition of the the Super Twins' relationship, John Corbin's relationship with his own sister, and Superman and the rest of the Superman family, and even even Kara herself. Uh, it's it's it worked very well. He handles all these characters so well. And that's a high compliment to PKJ because we certainly we've criticized other writers who aren't cap- who aren't that particularly skilled at handling this many players in a, in a, in a comic book. And but PKJ does a really good job here. He's keeping me glued. I'm invested in this story. And I, I, I find myself caring about Metallo. I don't believe it. <laughs> so and his sister. So kudos to PKJ and the arts fantastic. So uh, what do you think?
0: Yeah, I agree. The art's fantastic. Metallo, you know, getting some some real emotionality into his origin, some touch points, some relatability. There is is fantastic. Um, you know, I told Philip when we, when we had dinner. By the way, he made wanted to make sure that I told you hi, uh, and he gave me a couple extra copies. So, I, did you oh. order? Is this on your pull list? Should do I need to well, see yes, one?
1: It is. Yeah, it's on my pull list. yeah.
0: And I have I have two copies of the main cover uh, that are up for grabs. So, the people that hit me up on Twitter, um, I will ship those to you, uh, courtesy of, of PKJ.
1: Oh, well. um, thank you,
0: thank and, you, PKJ. Uh, yeah, fantastic. Uh, yeah, just the idea that Cyborg Superman, you know, is able to reach even from the Phantom Zone and uh, and control things that he's you know been uh, in contact with before. That's just a fantastic idea. Goes to the Incredible world building that that PKJ is able to do, and it's just fun. Like Cyborg Superman is is a character that should show up more often as kind of a a, a, a villain that Superman should should face. Like he's such a great Superman villain. Um, in a lot of ways, he's you know antithetical to what Superman stands for. He's all about himself, right, as opposed to being selfless like Superman is. So, uh, fantastic job there. Uh, the second story by Dan Jurgens um i'm still enjoying it uh it, it's interesting and i give a lot of credit to dan for very subtly leaving hints, something in the story that had me thinking right from the start that this princess that claimed to need help was really the, the villain all along now that's become you know clear to everybody involved <laughs> lois clark john himself this glenna uh was the, the the really the bad guy of the tale uh all along the Lee Weeks art, also fantastic. Uh, Lee Weeks is not somebody I typically think of when I think of a Superman artist. Um, you know, I think his style more suiting like a Batman because uh, the style reminds me a little bit of David Mazzucchelli. Certainly Lee Weeks had a legendary run on Daredevil, another street-level character. But, man, I just love the way he renders uh, Superman and Lois more of a little bit of a grounded feel to the Superman family here. So I'm, I'm really enjoying this. Uh, I'm very curious to see how it's all going to play out uh, as we get more and more hints about just how Buckle uh, Glenn is as a character. And maybe the, the best thing about it is just seeing John as the young kid. John still young, still, still needing to learn, still needing to become more experienced. Um, and that's something that we sort of lost, right? When he got aged up by Ben, it's something that a lot of people uh, obviously still don't care for. So. Uh, big fan of uh, the Lois and Clark uh, portion of uh, of the Superman family history, uh, if you will. So, what, what were your thoughts on it?
1: Not much to add. Uh, Dan Jurgens is doing a great job. I I love the character of Gliana. I, I love the fact that she's just sort of a young. She's a young teenager who's sort of. She was raised upper elite. She wants to. She wants to rule, and she. It's implied or hinted that she likely. Maybe even killed her own parents because she wants to rule over her own planet, and obviously a diametrically different (laughs) set of uh, values than uh, than young uh, John Kent has. But it it just makes it all the more it makes it all the more uh, visceral and real. And you know, so what? What I love about what Dan Jurgens manages to do here is that I love that both both uh, Clark and Lois. They're they're worried about their son, and I love that uh, Clark and Lois and Clark are listening to the to the message from Gliana. And yet, you could just tell that even though they know that their son's in danger, you, there's a there's a feeling that I got that kalal just knew that. Oh, I have a feeling that there's that there's more that meets the eye with this 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 young girl, and and uh, and uh, and he just you know that when he says when he tells Lois when she's he flies a, there's a wonderful scene. Uh, it's a wonderful three panels and it just the final panel just has Superman flying into the air and she's and Lois saying, bring my boy home. And, you know, that's exactly what he's going to do. <laughs> and, you know, that in many ways, God damn, you know, I love the competency in which Dan Jurgens even writes John Kent here. I think John Kent might even be able to save himself. Probably not. Dad's got to be there to help him out. He's still too young. But I love the fact that this is a young John Kent who's making mistakes, but he's not afraid to make them. And he's, as a young kid, he does make them. I mean, how often... I mean, one of the criticisms that w- of, that we get of, of young heroes nowadays, especially young writers trying to write new characters, is that they don't make them make enough mistakes. Is that they're heroes and they're perfect too soon. And here... Ironically enough, John Kent has been shown making more than one mistake here and making some judgments of character here. Uh, but yet there's something about his heroism shines through even more powerfully, despite the fact that he continues to make those mistakes while his father is looking for him to rescue him. It's just beautifully done. Uh, I have to say I am biased. Uh, I love Dan Jurgens. I, I hope they collect this. This is five parts. It'll end in six parts, I believe. I hope they collect this as one comic book. I would buy this as a hardcover, this story. I, I really like this. I hope they, they put it in an annual at some future date. I would love to buy to have all six parts of this uh, young John Kent story uh, uh, collected at some time in the future. But I, I quite liked it. Yeah, it was really,
0: really solid. Um, the last story, the John uh, Henry Iron story, Honestly, I didn't really get much out of it. John basically goes to this board um, that that I don't know exactly. It's it's hard to tell. I don't know if it's explained really well. Like who exactly they are in terms of why do they why do they have the ability? Why do they have the power to choose what the future of Metropolis is going to be and and you know what Steelworks is going to be able to to do to help protect the city? <laughs> it's not really clearly explained. Uh, but then at the end. Um, John Henry is confronted by Mr. Terrific and, you know, they, they sort of seem to, to fulfill a, a similar role in the DCU in terms of being, you know, engineers and super smart scientists and what have you. So I don't know, maybe there's some built-in antagonism there. I don't really know. Um, but I'm not, I'm not really getting much from this, um, from this story. It feels a little bit generic, a little paint by the numbers. And that's sort of what the art feels like as well. The art's very stiff, very heavy line weights from the artists. Um, Montez. So yeah, it's not really, I mean, and granted, I'm not the biggest John Henry Irons fan. I'm the first one to admit that. So um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I just, I don't have much to say other than that.
1: Well, I, I got a little bit more out of it than you did. Uh, writer Dorado quick. Uh, I think where he might be going with it is, uh, and I, I had to read this a couple times myself because the, I didn't understand what what Natasha Irons and 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 uh, Connor or Connor Kent were doing at the beginning. They were they were just hitting this force field, and essentially what they're doing is that they are doing that on purpose while. While Steele is given a lecture to, I think, city council or city officials, he's trying to sell them on a new energy absorption technology that he's created that you know, that could protect Metropolis from attack. And so that's why at different times Natasha is talking with Superboy and he's using his heat vision to power up her axe. And then she's swinging the axe at this force field that's around the building and it completely absorbs it. And what, what, uh, what uh, John Henry Irons tells the tells the council at the end is: You never even felt this building has been under attack by these. by has been has been attacked with Natasha and Superboy, and you never felt a thing, did you? And of course they didn't because the force field that John that John Henry Irons has created completely absorbs the the attack, and so the the people inside the building don't didn't even know that what was going on in the outside, and. And that's the way he sells it. He's trying to sell the protection of Metropolis. Metropolis can be protected at all points in the future because of my technology. And what with Mr. T, Mr. Terrific showing up at the end, my guess is, because he says to him, uh, you know, uh, just phenomenal presentation, he says, John, but you know you're done messed up now, right? And I think that there might be a different, they might they might be approaching the idea of protecting the public from two different maybe ideological spectrums you know mr terrific might think i'm just guessing that john henry irons is crossing a line that it's you're you're revealing you're using technology and and that maybe metropolis isn't ready for it or maybe there's a question of you know just when it's sort of like because he's he's the ultimate iron he's like the dc's iron man john henry irons and so you know should you use it just because you can use the tech should you use it maybe that angle uh, I also I just want to draw a quick analogy to this backup story because you and I reviewed uh, Cyborg number issue one last week and I couldn't help but notice that there's similarities between Cyborg uh, that issue and some of the themes in, in, in I think in this issue and that is that you know Cyborg that issue dealt with uh, dealt with Cyborg and, and his father but I, I, I do think that the, the, the uh, this idea of technology and you know uh, you know with cyborg dealing with AI technology and how it interacts to what extent, what are the boundaries between that and AI? Cause cyborg's fathers come back as, as, as an AI construct. And what's that? Where's, you know, where are the limits in the overlap between human interaction and technology and just, and uh, in terms of, relationships and then here we're dealing with the technology in terms of utilizing to literally change and impact an entire city so we're dealing with similar themes here and i kind of like it i i i think that they're they're not the same they're different stories as as obviously they're different characters and i think that uh i'm not sure if i'm right about where dorado quick might be going with this but i like the idea of seeing mr terrific show up and we have these two geniuses Two arguably, two of the, I'm sure, in the top 10 smartest people in the DC universe having perhaps fundamental differences in terms of how to use their technology and whether or not they should. So I'm, I'm curious to see where this goes.
0: Yeah, I, I'm curious enough too. It's just, I don't know, not enough interest in the character. I, I do love Mr. Terrific, but again, I think the art, the art just, it's, I don't want to say it's lackluster, but there's there's nothing exciting about the art. So it's hard for me to get. Exciting! Uh, excited about the story, if you will. So, anyway, overall, an enjoyable uh, action comics issue. Uh, there are uh, that does it for the the single issues. There is a DC Ruby issue four out um, as well, if that's your thing. Uh, as far as collected editions this week, Batman Urban Legends Volume Five, which collects um, issues of that anthology series. Uh, also, Poison Ivy Volume One, which collects uh, the first six issues of the recent. G. Willow Wilson series that we've been uh, enjoying that got um, extended beyond a a limited series. Shazam and the seven magic lands trade paperback. I mentioned it earlier written by Jeff Johns. Um, This collects issues one through 11 and 13 through 14, which is a whole series except for 12, which I think was a tie into something else and didn't hardly have Shazam in it, which is probably why they left it out. Um, That is coming out this week from DC as well. And then finally, d c pride just in time for d c pride twenty twenty three uh, we have the d c pride twenty twenty two out in hardcover so uh those are the collect editions that are out uh time for uh book of the week rocky what what's getting your nod this week
1: ah uh, man i I think I'm gonna have to go with the one that i enjoyed the most I will have to go with uh action comics uh, because for for the two two of the three stories I really like, and even the third one with Steel, it it just I thought the whole thing just sort of resonated with me. So I I was I will have to go with uh, Action Comics.
0: Uh, all right, well, there's three I considered that I thought were uh, just slightly above the the rest of the issues this week. I thought Justice Society was really really good. Um, I thought the Doom Patrol issue was very very enjoyable, uh, but ultimately I'm going with Static. Uh, that emotional gut punch at the end. Uh, you, you yourself mentioned it when we were talking about it, just how much you love Quincy as a character. Not like him, but love him. And it then I have that gut at the end to find out that he's gone. Uh, and the art is, is fantastic. That somber, dark color palette that uh, Draper Ivy chose to use throughout. Uh, yeah, I'm giving my nod to, to Static this week. So, uh, fantastic.
1: Right on. No. Uh, yeah, you well, know, it's funny, just a quick comment i i i actually I, I enjoy it's funny how I feel differently sometimes I feel better about the comics I read after i we have after we review them together because i sometimes I see them in a different light, but uh maybe this week was a slight, slightly better than I thought it was before we started talking and reviewing them <laughs> yeah
0: I often find that i often find that <laughs> if, if I read the comics like right before we review them. Um, I don't feel like they've had time to kind of marinate and like sometimes, and I don't know what it, cause it only happens with DC books. It doesn't happen with other books. It's like DC books get better after a night's sleep or something. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But, yeah. I find that, I find that oftentimes I'll read a DC book and it'll kind of bug something about it will bug me. And if I have more time to think about it, I'm, oh, I kind of see what they're trying to do actually. So yeah, pretty interesting anyway that's gonna do it everybody uh, you know what to do head over to youtube subscribe to rocky's channel we talk about it every time comic space boom exclamation point uh, make sure you subscribe like leave comments we always like to engage over there conversely if you're checking us out on youtube and you want to listen to other comic source content audio only just go to wherever you get your podcast and subscribe there's literally thousands of past episodes to check out reviews convention coverage all that sort of thing so we appreciate you joining us as always And we will talk to you next time. Don't forget, uh, hit me up on Twitter uh, if you want to get one of those free copies of Action Comics. So uh, let's go do it. Appreciate it, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us.